This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r 102.7 fm Welcome, welcome, welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, where we weekly wonder where our world might wander. How are you, Jed McCartney? I'm really well, thanks, Adam. How are you, Kate Dundas? Well. But uh, it's modernised. How are your respective Charlies? I just met a new Charlie. You did? <laughs> yeah. We've got two, char- two young Charlies as part of the Greening the Apocalypse crew now. We have. A four-year-old and a zero-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's okay, he's got a cough. Yeah. Mine's got the main flu. Mine just puked all over me before I came out of the house. I had to do a full change. I was like naked top half running around the house trying to find clothes. (laughs) So you both have like, okay, sick and kind of, you're not regretting the decision or anything though. Too late to pull out now. I don't know. After reading what we're going to talk about this evening, yeah, I'm having some crisis thoughts about the future, what the future will be like for Charlie. Yeah. And Charlie. It's well. definitely probably going to be one of, you know, those heavy shows we do every once in a while. But um, as the authors of the report we're going to talk about tonight will mention, and no doubt is that one of the problems with our world is not staring into the face of reality and rather choosing convenient interpretations of it. So let's just do it. Let's get into it. Mm. We've got one return guest and one new one. I'll introduce... First off, uh, for the first time on Greening the Apocalypse, Ian Dunlop. He is a Cambridge-educated engineer. He was an international oil, gas and coal industry executive and a chairman of the Australian Coal Council in the late 80s. And then he had a change of heart, I guess. We might find out about that. And he is now uh, a member of the Club of Rome, a member of Mikhail Gorbachev's Climate Change Task Force, a fellow of the Centre of Policy Development and a director of Safe Climate Australia and is a climate writer and activist. He joins us on the phone from Sydney. How are you, Ian? Well, thank you, Adam. Brilliant. Thanks you for coming on. Now, we have had David Spratt on before, your co-author, so let me introduce David. He is a climate activist, author and businessman. He is research coordinator for the Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration and blogs and publishes reports at climatecodered.org a site named after his co-authored 2008 book with Philip Sutton. And last time you were on, David, we talked about uh, the report that you both co-authored, you and Ian. Um, disaster, oh, the re- yeah, the report, did I call it a book? Um, disaster Alley, Climate Change, Conflict and Risk, which is a fascinating look at how climate change could disrupt world security and how some military advisors are talking about it and preparing for it. So welcome back. Thank you very much. David. Yeah. Thank you. Great to have you both here. 
I guess we're going to get on to your new report, which is called What Lies Beneath? The Story of Political Failure and Scientific Reticence on Climate Change's Existential Risks. But I thought first, perhaps, I'm actually quite interested, Ian, in hearing a little bit about, you know, how you managed to go from an industry insider and presumably a much better paid person than your current position as somebody poking at the edges of it and trying to make change to our energy industries. Yeah, well, um, it's not such a, <clears throat> a dramatic change in a way. Uh, Adam, I, as you said, I started my career in the fossil fuel industry. I worked in the international oil industry uh, for many, many years in various parts of the world, sort of exploration, production for oil and gas. And um, after the first oil shock in 1973, the fossil fuel industry, or the oil industry particularly, got very concerned about the availability of um, continuing availability of oil, given that the Arab countries had put the price up and there were all sorts of talks about uh, supply constraints and what have you. So a lot of people diversified, um, including the company I was with, and uh, I ended up coming to Australia as part of that diversification to set up a coal business for, uh, it was a Shell company actually, in um, the late 70s. In the sense it was owned by Shell, it wasn't a f- false company. <laughs> I think well, I'm with I worked, you. No, I worked for Shell basically, yes. but I came here to um, set up involvements in the coal industry, both in taking up um, stakes in existing companies and in setting up some new what they call greenfields projects in other words just completely new new projects and uh so i was involved in that activity initially in melbourne and then in sydney and um in queensland and new south wales particularly uh right through the 80s and as you mentioned i chaired the um australian coal association in the late 80s I then left the fossil fuel industry um, during the course of the 90s and um, one of the key reasons for that was the fact that very early in my career I had got involved in the long-term planning work that uh, the Shell company did in scenario planning as they call it, uh, looking at the long-term future and also um, around about that time the Club of Rome was working on uh, the limits to growth study which became quite famous was published in 1972 which looked at the implications of both population and um, consumption growing uh, you know into the long-term future 40 50 years out, and what the implications of that would be well we were doing the same sort of stuff mm-hmm. and one of the issues that was uh, was was clearly there even at that stage um, this was in the early 60s was the fact that you know, sooner or later the fossil fuel industry was going to have to recognise that increasing emissions of carbon were going to become a problem. So you were reading this while you were working for the corporations. How much did people inside the oil companies or the fossil fuel companies know about climate change or other limits to growth? Well, I mean, this this was, um, in those days, it was much less well known than it is obviously today and i mean but the science has been around for a long time and the science is not new i mean it's been you know going back to the 1800s Arrhenius um uh was talking about it 
way back then and uh, there'd been a number of studies conducted you know through the 19, 1900s 1930s and what have you so the general concept that if you kept on pushing carbon into the atmosphere you would warm the planet was one that um, was not particularly new I mean it wasn't seen as, a, as a, an uh, urgent issue at that point because um, in those days the population uh, global population was probably around uh, what three four billion uh, compared to the sort of seven getting on for eight today and uh, we had a in effect uh, a pretty much an empty world where a lot of the, cons the the pressures that were on environmentally and what have you were far less than uh, they are today of course in, in, in those days in those days you're at a senior management level would those understandings um, have filtered up to board level and shareholder level or was it sort of constrained amongst you know clever management people but isolated from the I, I, I think it was not something that would was getting great attention at senior level I mean this was more if you like the long term thinkers um, smoking a bit of opium about what might ultimately happen down the track, uh, looking at the science around the place, and a lot of a lot of organisations were doing the same thing. I mean, the Club of Rome, for example, uh, looked at the implication of you know exponential growth in population and consumption, and they looked at not specifically um, carbon emissions, but pollution generally as a proxy for for carbon emissions. So you know the understanding was much less clear cut than than it is today. But the point, I think, I guess the point about it is that having got involved in that work, I stayed with it uh, right through my career. So I've kept my interest in these longer-term issues. Um, I've kept involved in a lot of the scenario work that goes on around the world as time's gone by. That you know, the science has got uh, better and better, the evidence has got clearer and clearer, and there comes a point when you have to do something about it. And for me, that came in the the course of the 80s when the coal industry actually um, a group of us within the coal industry uh, initiated a range of um, toward the end of the 80s a range of research work on what the implications of coal really were going to be mm -hmm. and um, that um, actually was quite valuable work um, I have to say that in those days the fossil fuel industry was a lot more progressive in looking at these things than it actually is today I, I, I think for a variety of reasons, but um, in terms of my history, I mean, in the early 90s, I decided, decided to move away from the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry, um, partly for these reasons that we now need to reverse the process and get out of fossil fuels. So it sounds like, in a way, it was risk management that you began inside the industry uh, informed your activism outside of it. How did you come to be working with... Um, someone who I, I get from memory I think David you have more of a kind of activist you come across baby, as a merry prankster baby boomer lefty yep right yep I confess <laughs> so how did you guys begin working together just briefly well um, I, when I started reading this area I think I saw an odd opinion piece in Fairfax by this mm -hmm. guy called Ian Dunlop from Sydney uh -huh. Cole exactly that's a bit interesting for somebody like me and um yep. In 2007, somewhat by accident, I, I wrote a book with a colleague and uh, it was a book saying, I'm not a scientist, uh, but I reckon the science is too conservative. So it's a big stunt to say, I think mm. this is this is, um, this is is probably not on the ball and uh, you're looking for friends to make yourself look a bit more credible. Mm -hmm. And Ian seems like the most credible person 
on our side of the fence. So uh, <laughs> I think we had some conversations and uh, and uh, asked him to write a forward in, in the hope that we'd hitch up our credibility, if yeah, I might yeah. put it that way. Is, <laughs> is that too crude, Ian? Yeah, that's pretty right. We had a few copies in various coffee shops yeah. around Melbourne, as I recall. And, yes. Uh, it was a sort of coming together. I wrote the foreword for Climate Code Red. And really the relationship, I think, developed from there as we've, we've, um, we've done increasingly, increasing number of um, things together in reports culminating in the, the three we put out in the last uh, couple of years. Well, your now the latest report... The latest one on uh, what lies beneath on existential risk. And you certainly seem to have garnered some scientific credibility with that one going on the forward, which is um, by... A man we can't talk about yet. Oh, yes. Okay. Because we did, we did a version of this last year because Ian was doing some work uh, uh, with the Club of Rome and we thought uh, it's, it's very difficult in climate policy making because there's a procedure that goes on. I mean, it's an ideology, it's a political process and it has boundaries around it. Mm-hmm. And for somebody to say, look, I think this process is actually not working... The evidence is too conservative, mm-hmm. and us on the side think we can decipher this and, and put it back together in a different way is a, is a bit of a big ask. And so uh, a version of this report was done last year, and then we realised there was a lot more that we could say, so um, we've rewritten it, and it's going to be released again in a much-expanded version on Monday week. So there's a version out there on the website, and there's a, mm-hmm. a new one coming out with a lot more in it. Well, it's a fantastic report, and thanks for giving us a sneak peek at it. We will um, you, we'll put up links to it and mention it again at the end of the show. Now, Ian, I know you have... Uh, well. If we can just think about our global economy and compare it to a car for a second, there's this non-renewable fossil fuel going into the engine and we know part of the problem here is that it's going to run out and the other problem is at the other end at the exhaust pipe, which is what your reports together is focusing on, um, the pollution cause. But I know that you have a background, Ian, as the chair of the Australian Association for the Study of Peak Oil or Deputy chair is it um yeah deputy that's right and the issue of peak oil we've talked about on this show a few times just is there a way you could say in a nutshell why this issue has dropped off the headlines um and this is the idea that oil in particular and other fossil fuels um are finite and therefore at a certain point in time we're going to find it harder and harder to pull them out of the ground at the same rate that we're used to pulling them out and so then we will have less and less year on year. Or it will cost a lot more or, to pull them out and therefore the cost of energy goes up a lot to get the same amount of energy out and uh, and uh, business doesn't like paying more for the same product rather than less. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, it could be a combination of both. Less less of it and more expensive. How, has, has, is, this, is it a non-issue now, Ian? Should we still be concerned? Uh, very much. I mean, it's not a non-issue at all. It's the, the problem has not gone away. The context has changed somewhat. Um, Just to give a bit of history, the real concern is that there are a finite number of oil fields around the world. And if you produce from an oil field, the production uh, typically sort of goes up to a plateau. It stays there for uh, a fair bit of time, and then it drops off. And if you add up all the oil fields around the world and you add up all those profiles, there comes a point where if you, uh, obviously, to keep that whole process running, if demand for oil is increasing, then you have to keep discovering new oil fields to meet that demand. 
Now, we reached the point in around about 2005, 2006, when um, the discoveries were dropping off, the demand was still increasing, and the price of oil basically was rising. Well, I think uh, discoveries remember, peaked in the um, 60s. In or... the global financial crisis yeah. uh, in 2008, or just at the, be- at the beginning of that, the price of oil rose to a peak of about $147 US a barrel. Now, the effect of that, um, <clears throat> that was basically a result of constraints on supply as demand was increasing. And the history of oil prices is that once oil goes much over $100 a barrel, the world has gone into recession. And the peak oil issue was one of the key reasons that um, the, <clears throat> for the, uh, the triggering of the global financial crisis, it wasn't just that. Uh, there was a whole lot of obviously financial shenanigans which were going on with mortgages and uh, what have you uh, in the US that sort of triggered the, a lot of the problems in the financial markets. But peak oil was in behind it as one of the key the key issues. What happened is that the um, in the years from about 2003-04, the US had been experimenting with the extension of uh, the so-called fracking process, which has been in use for a long time. I mean, it's um, in conventional oil and gas reservoirs. I mean, you, you often, if you have difficult reservoirs with um, very impermeable uh, sandstone or limestone, you can frack them, which basically means forcing fluid into the reservoir rock and opening up the um, pores in the rock and the connection uh, passages in the rocks, so the permeability increases and the flow of oil and gas increases. Mm-hmm. The uh, experts in this in the U.S. then started thinking, as they saw that oil was the conventional oil availability was becoming harder and harder. As David said, I mean, you you were having to spend more and more to access conventional oil in more and more difficult places. The easy, you know, the low-hanging fruit had been used up they started to think about, well, what do we do about the um, very large reserves of unconventional oil and gas in things like um, what they call tight oil in shale beds, um, in very tight permeability rock. Um, How could we apply the fracking process to get at that sort of resource? And they'd experimented with that for quite a few years in trying to break open a lot of those reservoirs, which is much harder than, you know, conventional oil and gas reservoir. Mm. And they were quite successful technically in doing it, but the trouble is that to do it, it was quite expensive. Mm. So as oil prices went up and the availability of conventional oil in, in the U.S. got harder and harder, and the U.S., should remember, is, uh, you know, a very old oil province. It was the earliest sort of uh, oil producer in the world, basically. Mm. Uh, in Pennsylvania and way back in the 1800s. So allow me to see if I can do it justice. Uh, I, I've been, you know, thinking a little bit about, you know, peak oil's disappeared from the, from the public sphere. It's yeah. not discussed about anymore. Climate change still is. And, and part of that is because this fracking process that you described, particularly in the U.S., um, increased oil production and gas production and gas production and gas yeah, production in australia right. which is really the big fossil fuel move as much as coal in a way that we don't talk about yeah the incredible amounts of gas from the northwest shelf and and queensland and so on yeah but, it, but in a nutshell what happened in the u.s is that the because the oil prices went up the fracking industry looked suddenly became much more attractive economically 
yeah. Wall Street piled money into it because they saw it as the great uh, saviour for the future. And oil prices, uh, production then started to increase. Just to turn what you've been saying into a, into a segue into what is probably the meat of tonight's situation, um, this... You know, it really is a short-term boom, what I think you're describing, partly because yep. of that um, money that's being pushed into it and partly because fracking um, the the wells have a very short half-life compared to conventional oil. Um, but, yeah, while, while peak oil has disappeared out of the media and climate change is still there, if you look at what we're actually doing, it's almost as if we pretend climate change isn't real, but peak oil is because we're using these dirtier, more... In more polluting, they produce more CO2 per the amount of oil that comes out of them. And um, it's a weird sort of upside-down world that we live in, I think, that the things that we, we're writing about we don't respond to. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R. Oh, <laughs> it's me. Uh, you're listening to Green the Apocalypse and tonight we have Ian Dunlop on the phone and David Spratt in the studio. And we've got them in to talk about their report, What Lies Beneath, um, which is terrifying reading, to put it blank, plainly. Reality's like that sometimes. It's a little bit scary. Yeah. So, so far in the show we've been talking a little bit about um, Ian's move from the coal and gas corporation to becoming an activist and a little bit about fracking and um, and peak oil and the conversations that never really seem to get anywhere. Now, David, your report, What Lies Beneath? The Inside Story of Political Failure and Scientific Reticence on Climate Change's Existential Risks. Yeah. Tell us about it in a nutshell. Um, in a nutshell... What's likely to happen with climate change is being underestimated. Um, it's being underestimated at a scientific level because science is naturally a conservative process. Mm-hmm. That is, in the science world, you don't say something until you can prove it and produce tables of evidence and formulas and have 50 people review it and say it's all correct. Mm. So you don't say things until you're absolutely sure. And we're absolutely sure about very things in the world. So science always lags behind reality by a good bit and always will, mm-hmm. despite the Einsteins. Uh, so if you've got a whole lot of processes in the climate system, which we have, which look like they're not really good, but you can't quantify them, you can't get the data, you can't write equations about them, then you, you, you don't think they're happening. So the International Panel on Climate Change is sort of infamous for having estimates of sea level rises. And this saga's been going on for 15 years where they say well we know as the planet gets warmer uh, water expands so the ocean will rise and that's going to be Mm -hmm. half a metre by 2100 and by the way there are these things in the Arctic and the Antarctic called (laughs) glaciers Hold on a minute, the ocean expands Yes, when water gets warmer it expands I did not know that Oh, yeah. I just thought it was things melting that made I thought it was the melting Pot spoil over (laughs) Oh, yeah. I thought it was the vigour of the bubbles. <laughs> yes, the, the, when things move more vigorously, they tend to move apart. Oh, because the vibrations of the mm. atoms. I remember that from physics. We don't physics. get too fundamental here. <laughs> but they, so they know that. The water expands and sea level rises, but there were these things in, in, at, the, at the two poles which potentially have 70 metres of sea level rise. That is 70. 70, 70, yep. so back 
45 million years ago when it was warmer now, the last time we had no ice on the planet, mm. the sea levels are about 70, mi- 70 metres higher and that's as much as can get because there's no more. But the scientists and the IPC have said because we can't tell you how fast these things will melt or whether they've mas- passed their tipping points, then we won't include them. So they have a statement saying, we estimate the sea level rise to 2100 will be half a metre but there is other processes which we can't quantify, which means it could be a lot more. Mm. And then a journalist or a politician who go for numbers rather than complicated sentences go, oh, it's half a metre. And that's a process where things which are possibly happening, probably happening, will happen at some stage, which we can't quantify, then just fall off the story. So the story is conservative. And, I mean, I tweaked this when... Ten years ago, when I started reading this stuff, and I said to somebody, what I read in the detailed science and what I seem to hear at a political level seem to be two different things. And they said, ah, you need to go to a morning tea in a science, climate science lab, and then you'll find the real story. So they're saying not even that... So there's a difference between what the politicians say and what's written in the scientific yeah, papers. Because, because the interna- but that's only half the story. Because the International Panel on Climate Change, which consolidates the science has lead authors who are appointed by diplomats. Yeah. And in the end, uh, the scientists produce very big, thick technical reports, but what are called the summary for policymakers, which is the bit which gets the media, are voted on by the climate ambassador representatives of the 190 countries that mm. constitute the IPCC. So the Americans and the Saudis and the Russians just blip out everything. Mm. And, and, and climate scientists on the records are saying this stuff was cut out. Yeah. So even that science is, is a politically censored version and then it gets into a, a policy-making sense where another group of ambassadors start to think about what they might do about evidence that's already been deconstructed by the first of ambassadors and then you've got a problem and that in essence is what we're talking about so you have an underestimation that gets underestimated yep. and then the underestimated underestimation yeah. gets underestimated yep. and you've got you've got to show well, we talk about there being three risks what we've talked about the scientific underestimation of risk the political underestimation of risk and then a problem with risk itself in that uh without getting too fancy mm. um they will say, well, to get to two degrees, to, to stop getting to a certain temperature, we've got this much of emissions budget left with a 50% chance. Because, oh, that sounds all right. But you, what you're not saying is there's a 50% chance of you missing the target. Mm. And you say, we've got this budget for two degrees, but there's a 10% chance in the probabilities it will be four degrees. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, it and the sh- difference between two degrees and four degrees is the difference between surviving and not. Yes, um, one of the world's leading scientists was asked at a conference here in Melbourne in 2011, what's the difference between two degrees and four degrees? And he answered it in two words. Hmm. You die. Human civilization. Mm. Yeah. Human civilization, and that's something that we've brought into this report for the first time, which is to talk about existential risks. Something that Ian said to me ten years ago that I never really understood, and then last year when we were looking at this sort of conflict issues and climate change about how conflicts uh, affect relationship between nations, and you realise nations are going to disappear and and so on. So and there's a major lack of leadership when it comes to this kind of thing. And a lot of it might be to do with the dilution of facts and the dilution of what might happen. Um, there's, I read an article of Ian's recently about the fiduciary responsibility of politicians actually doing something well, about it. 
that's Ian's sort of uh, specialty because he spent some years as the uh, executive director of the Institute of Directors, which is what fiduciary duty is all about. So that's yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's that's um, absolutely central to the whole debate about climate. I mean, as David said, I mean, the, the problem with the climate issue itself is that we've never experienced this sort of risk uh, in, hum- in really in human history. The problem is now global, and the difficulty with it is that what you do today in terms of increasing carbon in the atmosphere, you don't see the results of for many time, many years to come. Um, you know, possibly decade, two decades, or whatever, because of the lag in the climate system. I mean, we've got a we've got a um, an economic, um, political, and social system, which is extremely short-term focused, and uh, that's become, in the last twenty years, it's become even more short-term focused in the corporate world because of the way we pay people. I mean, we we pay people an awful lot of money, short-term bonuses to produce results, which was not the way the corporate world used to work before, say, the middle of the 1990s. So there's no incentive to think long-term. And climate change is a long-term issue, but the, but the core point of this is that um, the first responsibility of a government is to ensure the security of the population. Now, if you want to ensure the security of the population, you have to look at the real risks we confront, not what is considered to be the immediate political issues of the day. Now, we're running around, you know, talking about um, tax cuts for business. Uh, We're talking about all sorts of other sort of changes in the short-term sense and what have you. But the issue, the big issues that we really uh, confront today, the really serious issues that this country and the rest of the world confront are things like climate change. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> it hasn't been a great year or so since we've had you on, David, from a climate perspective. Do you want to summarise some of the recent events? Uh, look, I think what's happened around the world, if you look at these record heat in the Middle East, in, in, um, in Japan, where we had this incredible rain and incredible other things happening all at the same time, this uh, record heat wave in Europe, uh, the fact that you've got wildfires burning inside the Arctic Circle, wow, that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a spooky one. Um, I think there's a, a bit of a shock a shock and awe that the climate system, the laws of physics and chemistry have, have started to uh, to write the political story for the politicians because mm. they won't. So I think there's a bit of waking up going yeah. on at the moment, a bit of Didn't it get to OF. six degrees in the Arctic, like in the middle of winter? There's There's been anomalies, changes from normal yeah. of 20, 30, 40 degrees. I mean, this is unprecedented because climate change is fundamentally changing the, the Arctic system. Um, a thing called the jet stream, which runs around the Arctic and keeps the cold in, is destabilising. So, and that's what led to Superstorm super Sandy, uh, has led to this record heat where systems get jammed, so the heat's there for longer. So I think there's a bit of an OD moment going on at the moment. It's a question mm. of whether that will be translated in, into some clear thinking mm. about what to do. And, and the report looks at risk and it talks about that, that there's actually a long tail of probabilities of higher degrees changes. Mm. So, by, so that some of these 
um, out, outliers where we might go to six degrees uh, that aren't aren't such a tiny probability actually. Um, what I mean, just to you said four degrees was the quote would be the end of civilization. I mean, what what kind of world are we looking at there in a nutshell? Well. I mean, 10 years ago, there was actually a discussion about this and they had the Four Degrees Conference in Europe and they had one in Australia and people at that stage said if you got to Four Degrees, the planet would be down to one billion people. Um, some people said half a million, but there was a discussion then. Um, That's because agriculture is, is adapted to a stable climate. Well, as it gets warm, basically between the two tropics, the the yield in food is going to go right down. I yeah. mean, rain systems get driven towards the poles. Uh, as it gets hot, uh, various various cereals can't seed. And so you just you get a drop-off in food. You get higher evaporation rates, so what rain you have doesn't stay as long. That's partly of what we're seeing now, that in the drought industry, it's not that it's necessarily been dry for longer, but because it's hotter, what's water you've got doesn't stay as long. So people, so I think science uh, would agree with a, a general view put, put by Professor Kevin Anderson that four degrees is incompatible with the maintenance of human civilization. I don't think, I don't think anybody really disagrees with that as a, as a starting proposition. Mm. We, we mentioned earlier in the show when we were talking to Ian the idea of peak oil and that that kind of suggests that more or less, even if climate change wasn't a big issue, that at some point we would be forced to live with less energy and by virtue of that, less consumer goods and reorganise our societies and infrastructures around a lower energy future. We're going to have to do it, whether it's because of that or be- if there is political pressure to um, to bring in climate Taxes or carbon taxes, either, either by design or by fault of by, by default and by circumstance. Yeah, one would way rather, or the other. Would you rather do it by design or by circumstance? Well, I think for the sake of most people on this planet, design would be a good bit better. Yeah, call me conservative. Now, did you notice that um, last night on Q One A, the Agriculture Minister David Littleproud said that um, he doesn't give a rat's if climate change is man-made or not when responding to the huge drought that we have in New South Wales and through um, central Queensland and um, much of South Australia. Uh, I can't bear to watch Q and A. It's like <laughs> it's like question time on steroids. But I think, well, I think Ian, I'll... did you watch it? Yeah, I mean, to be fair to him, he, uh, well, not fair, but he, he did changes. He qualified the statement this morning saying that what he meant was that whether you believe in climate change or not, you're going to have to do something about helping the farmers in the short term. Yeah. But the point about it is that completely misses the point about climate change and its implications. I mean, the real issue we have in this country is that the government and large parts of the opposition just do not believe that climate change is an issue and therefore the entire problem we have with climate and energy policy is driven off that fact in other words what we've got are policies that are set up to pretend we're doing something whilst they're doing nothing at all to seriously address the issue and it's implicit in what david littleproud said the other day i mean uh, uh, last night i mean The point is that if you accept climate change is a serious issue and an existential risk, which is what we argue, then the action you take is completely different from the one you take if you just think this is a Dorothea McKellar issue where, you know, lands of (coughs) drought and flooding rains and it'll all all get fixed. Mm. 
Now, I mean, the point, you know, the whole point about this is we should have been planning for the fact that the uh, droughts and the rainfall in Australia was going to change fundamentally. We should have been planning for that years ago. There's nothing new in this. The scientists have been telling us for at least 20 years that this is what would start happening. Now, it's been clear for at least 10 years that this trend was starting. Ian, as I remember, Ross Garner in his report in 2010, his first report to the Labor government, said that if you got to four degrees, the amount of water in the Murray-Darling system would decrease by 95% or something like that. So, Mm. I mean, this has been known even at a a national policy-making level for a decade. So what do we have to do in in your... I mean, if you listen to um, what's going on around the world, and we tend to be extremely insular here, and when you don't get much reporting on what is happening really happening in the rest of the world certainly not in the commercial uh, <clears throat> media and even the abc has got cowed into not saying too much about it because of pressure from the government but if you listen to what's going on in california at the moment there are serious discussions taking place in california about the fact that large parts of california are going to become uninhabitable and what are we going to do about the climate refugees that that's going to generate how are we going to reorganize the economy and what have you? Now, they're way behind the eight ball, too, but at least they're more advanced than we are. Mm. And that's the sort of problem Australia now has, because a lot of agricultural land is going to become unproductive. Um, you, look at, you, know, you look at the other side of the equation. I mean, we've just invested half a, uh, half a billion dollars to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation <laughs> to protect the Great Barrier Reef. We're running around the place trying to develop new coal mines in the Galilee Basin, build coal-fired power stations. We had a parliamentary delegation in Japan last week at the instigation of Minister Canavan trying to encourage investment in coal-fired power stations just up the road from the Great Barrier Reef. What sort of crazy nonsense is this? It's co- uh, you use the phrase in the report cognitive dissonance and Absolutely. you also quote George Orwell um, talking about or he's this is from 1984 you say the book uh, 1984 the book 1984 yeah uh that we there's this he describes this this the state there where the population accepts the most flagrant violations of reality because they never fully grasp the enormity of what was demanded of them and we're not sufficiently interested in public events to notice what was happening by lack of understanding they remain sane Mm. (laughs) i hope we haven't pushed anybody to the edge this evening (laughs) sure that the population doesn't understand those issues i mean this is what has been happening both uh, in the united states and here for the last 20 or 30 years is that the um, vested interests in the fossil fuel industry and so on have been quite deliberately investing a lot of money in stopping the, the real understanding of climate change taking place. This is the whole disinformation campaign and so on. Well, we've had a really interesting show. Ian Dunlop, thank you so much. Um, really felt like I uh, could have talked to both of you for many hours tonight. And um, David Spratt, thank you for coming on for the second time. Where can we find your latest report so from the 20th of august monday week it will be at breakthroughonline.org.au or if people at that date were just to google what lies beneath um i won't give any secrets away the cover is a picture of uh, an iceberg in antarctica Mm. 
where a little bit sticks above the water, but most that matters is below the water. So that's a very crude metaphor mm. that we're using, that there's a lot more below the surface than above. Or they could just uh, break through uh, Google, break through what lies beneath, and they'll find it. Brilliant. And can I just encourage everyone, having had a quick read of it this afternoon, um, read it, get yourself informed, don't believe all the stuff that's flying around, read it for yourself because um, it will uh, inform you and hopefully prompt you to some action. Fire you up. Thank you, Jed. Mm. It's um, not particularly long and it's full of graphs and it's very well written, hard to put down, even impressive for something on the topic. So thank you both very much for being on the show and for your respective work. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.